might get kind of lonesome with that soldier boy hers gone. I wish she were mine. Every time I look at her, I wish I had just such a little girl. This has been a terrible tragedy for Mrs. Daigle as she's lost her only child. That know-it-all Monica Breed, love. I don't think nobody knows anything but her. He has the mind of an eight-year-old, but he's managed to produce a family, so I keep him on. Give me those shoes back. Oh, no, I got them shoes head with. Nobody but me can find them. Better give me those shoes. They're mine. Give them back to me. I believe you did it. What do you give me if I give you a basket of kisses? I'll give you a basket of hugs. I'll miss your hugs. <laughs> well, I'm not letting a slice agree. Really knows what she's told of you. Don't mind me being presumptuous. I had a long talk with that guard since I saw you last. And that was a long, interesting conversation. He said he saw Rhoda on the pier just before Claude was found among the pilings. She owes something all right. Did you have anything? I don't care how small it was. Did you have anything to do with the way Claude got drowned? What makes you ask that, Mother? Mother? Now, look me in the eye and tell me the truth, because I must know. No, Mother, I didn't. You're not going back to the Fern School next year. They don't want you anymore. Okay. I'm going to call Miss Fern and have her come over here. You think I lied to you her? You did lie to her. But not to you, Mother, not to you. You know something? Miss Fern dyes her hair. And Rhoda's a sweet, perfectly sound little Who's girl. She father is she? Right, Daddy. Next to Daddy, you lift me up best. Why do you look at me? I just want to see your face. Hello, this is Lee Gambin from Diabolique. You just heard the wonderful um, trailer for The Bad Seed from 1956 with that brilliant score from Alex North, um, legendary composer Alex North, uh, who did a bunch of different film scores, obviously. Um, Viva Zapata and um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? A whole bunch of beautiful scores that people love and know and recognise. Um, Streetcar Named Desire, etc. But we are here today, this is the first in a, which we hope would be a regular or at least semi-regular series where I um, introduce and discuss with some of my favourite people some of my favourite things and some of my favourite people being local folk who are doing awesome stuff in the world of film criticism and film writing and film historian work, etc. Um, academics and um, writers and journalists, etc. who are doing all this wonderful stuff. And today, the first guest I have for this um, ongoing series, hopefully ongoing series is the excellent craig martin hello craig oh that's a lovely thing <laughs> for you to say it's wonderful to be here with you lee 
Yes, you too. So Craig recently completed his doctorate at the University of Melbourne, focusing on representations of monster children in American cinema from the early silent era to 1960, as well as writing for various scholarly journals and contributing chapters to such collections as Children in the Films of Alfred Hitchcock and Misfit Children. Um, Craig also serves on the board of Red Feather Journal. So he's done a lot of work and spent a lot of time discussing monster children and evil children. And I just want to open, Craig, with going back Back to what we started this um, podcast with um, in regards to the intro there with the bad seed. For me personally, I feel like the bad seed is absolutely a pinnacle example of the evil child um, subgenre of horror and the players as well and the novel. But this film really um, sort of does capture a lot of the elements that are sort of used and pop up a lot in different various tropes in um, uh, future uh, evil child movies that come up later. What are your thoughts on the bad seed as it sa- stands in the way of e- uh, evil children films? Uh, look, uh, to begin with, I have to say that I love the bad seed. It's such a, an amazing film. Uh, I've seen it so many times and it uh, makes me uh, angry uh, with the injustices that happen, with the fact that um, Rhoda Penmark gets away with what she does. Uh, <laughs> and it always makes me cry. Um, Eileen Heckart as Hortense Daigle mm. always brings tears in my eyes. Mm. Her sense of incredible tragic loss uh, is um, heartrending. It's yeah, it's a it's a terrific film, well acted. It's amazing. It's one of the few examples of a um, a Hollywood film that has actually taken the Broadway cast and used them wholesale. Mm-hmm. Uh, with only a few changes, but Nancy Kelly was from the uh, from the original Paddy McCormack, from the original Henry Jones, Eileen Heckart, and so on. Just terrific. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned Eileen Hecker, what an actress. And also, it's really amazing to see. I remember as a child seeing it and something resonated with me as a kid that the the mother of a victim has so much screen time and has so much of a presence and you get to feel her grief. Because for a lot of times, a lot of horror films, um, especially of that period and earlier, um, relatives of victims don't really have time to grieve. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're not really sort of given any sort of screen space to do that. And this is, you know, two pivotal scenes that she's in, major scenes where she is this woman that's just broken. And I, I love um, Christine Penmark's line to, to Rhoda, trying to tap into Rhoda, but, you know, you can't go through that brick wall Rhoda's put up. She's such a sociopath as well as a psychopath, where she says that could have been the only time Mrs. Daigle could ever have a child. You know, that, that, that stuff is just really touching and as you say sad yeah oh incredibly um and also speaking of lines the line that uh christine says to um the headmaster um claudia fern Mm. she says she says she's going to have to live with this until she dies Mm. and it's just like oh my god yeah it's yeah (laughs) it really hammers home the tragedy of it all and um and the villainy of causing death Absolutely. The repercussions of it all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rhoda is such a fun movie monster, I feel. And I've um, thankfully and luckily been uh, is um, and friends with Patty McCormack. And I've interviewed her a couple of times um, and love talking to her. And she's gorgeous and she speaks so highly of that role. And, you know, it's 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 something that's iconic now. You know, it's an amazing, um, not just pop cultural iconic role, but something that kind of lives within the realm of film history and as well as theatre history. It's, it's really important. 
important. And she talks fondly of Rhoda and um, uh, definitely sees Rhoda as <laughs> this evil kid and there's no pathos. And I think that's really cool and interesting because um, I feel like if something like the bad seed was to be reinterpreted late, like now, they'd give her a reasoning. Like it's not just that she was born evil, born a bad seed. There'd be probably some kind of, you know, um, psychological damage given to her that has caused her to do such evil. But I really hate that. I love the fact that she's just this monstrous kid and that it's a generational thing and um, something genetic. I think that's really cool. Like that, like diabetes, it skipped a gen. <laughs> Look, I, I actually love that part of uh, the the film and the book and the play yeah. uh, that all play with that. Uh, and for me, that is sort of um, riding on the shirt tails of um, eugenics, Nazi eugenics. Mm-hmm. And that's something that was very much disavowed by Americans after the Second World War because of what happened uh, in Nazi Germany with eugenics and how it was used to rationalise the um, the genocide, uh, as well as all the sort of experiments they used they did, um, and so the thing was that uh, Hitler took a lot of his ideas from American um, experiments with eugenics, um, and so that was a, a big deal at the time amongst academics, amongst the uh, intelligentsia, mm-hmm. and so after the Second World War, there was this mass migration and rejection. Uh, a mass migration away from and rejection of um, eugenics. And so when William March used it in his novel, it was very much disavowed and poo-pooed and said, this is this is a, a nonsense that you could have behavioural elements uh, being, um, uh, being uh, inherited. Um, and yet, you know, we do it all the time. It's like, oh, that's so my mother or oh, I get that, you know, my mm-hmm. kid gets that from me or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's always sort of, things that we play with all the time and take for granted. And as it turns out, um, uh, eugenics turned into genetics and genetics has been playing with a lot of those things anyway. And so now we're at a time when in the 80s and 90s and thereon, where that sort of thinking about behavioural elements has come back into the culture and into science again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting that when this film came out, part of it was still fated because everyone was just so down on this whole eugenics idea. Um, but that's to me. That's part of the point. That part of the point for it, in terms of what uh, William March was saying, was um, that uh, there is this diabolical nature in in mankind, and it is inherited. Right, and also it come, the film comes out in the fifties, which is like the height of the Cold War paranoia and you know monster movies and horror films tapped into that paranoia and that fear you know your big bug movies um and as well as melodramas melodramas tap into the other you know the 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 fallen woman or the boy that's not quite right or the you know the the you know things and also a lot of theater works as well and films that became that sorry plays that became films like The Dark at the Top of the Stairs based on the William Ng play, um, Tea and Sympathy from Robert Anderson, they, these these people who were different. Uh, and Rhoda is that. She's kind of another Cold War monster as well. So it's kind of, I love what you're saying about the Nazi aspect, but as well as this kind of um, fear of maybe even a communist in in the realm of the of this yeah. world, even though she's like the, you know, the probably the most well-dressed. Well yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, look, I... I, I <laughs> In my thesis, I sort of um, uh, dabbled on quite a bit about the whole Nazi element and how that was 
um, sort of disavowed after the war as well. And the truth was, as one writer says, that Americans really didn't know what to do with Germany mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the culture that they inha- that they found and the, the trauma of um, of what humans were capable of doing to each other um, was just something they just couldn't make sense of. And so it's things like, I guess, psycho and that sort of stuff, which tried ways of, of um, maybe dealing with that and the senselessness of that sort of violence. Um, but a film that comes out before um, The Bad Seed, because uh, The Bad Seed is commonly, not just amongst academics, but amongst most people, is considered the first um, monster or evil child film. Most certainly is not, right. And it most certainly is not, yes. You and I both know that. But, you know, it's amazing when you look at the literature, just how little of it there is that explores films from before 1956. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that a really important film... Uh, that was made in the last year, in the last full year of the uh, Second World War, and in the um, six months before the war ended, was one by Leslie Fenton called Tomorrow the World, uh-huh. um, that was released on December 29, 1944. So just on the cusp of the new of the new year, mm-hmm. um, and it sort of did okay business, but. Um, well, actually, did very good business um, in its first um, two or three months. Um, but then, of course, the war was just about over. Uh, it was three months after that again that, um, sorry, two months after that, that the um, Nazis um, surrendered in May. Um, and so it kind of was ill-fated in one way. But that's not such a bad thing considering what it's about because the film is about what, hap- what do we do after the war? What do we do with 10 million kids who have been um, uh, um, the subject of the sort of propaganda mm. that uh, they've been exposed to for since you know a lot of them since they were born, and how do we how do we change hearts and minds? Uh, and that's what the film is mainly about. But you have this kid um, played by the wonderful Skip, what's his name? Um, Skip Homia, mm-hmm. um, who plays this kid named Emil, um, who is adopted by his uncle, his American uncle, who lives in a small university town in the States. Um, and he's uh, a widow and his uh, sister had married a German guy who um, uh, he had met uh, before the war and they became very solid academic friends and then um, meets the sister. They get married, they go back to Germany, all hell breaks loose, they have a child and um, because uh, the brother is an academic he's killed by the nazis as is the mother and so you have this boy who's adopted by his uncle comes to the states and is a full-blown nazi he's a full-blown um hitler youth and uh causes no end of problems including beginning to recruit some of the kids in the small town towards his way of thinking mm. fascinating film and a lot of the ideas that you see being raised in that film um recur in the bad seed and so i do wonder if um william march was sort of inspired um by maybe the play when he saw it on uh, broadway in 1943 i think came out um or perhaps the film itself because uh it's it's a very very powerful film and it's amazing how much of the behavior of skip is like um rhoda and twice in the film he tries to kill people once with his Nazi knife, he tries to stab another boy he's fighting with, and uh, and he creeps up behind his um, behind his cousin, um, played by the beautiful Joan Carroll. Mm-hmm. 
she's just gorgeous mm-hmm. in it and she's so delightful and she loves her cousin. I know. And, and she throws a party for him and uh, he creeps up behind her while she's organising the party and bashes her over the head and we yeah. think she's dead. Yeah. It's just like, what the hell? Yeah, I, um, I wrote about that. I mentioned that in passing in an essay I did for a Blu-ray release of Class of 1984, actually. Um, because it's kind of like, it's like a predecessor. And then in between that, talked about Cabaret, um, because Tomorrow Belongs to Me is kind of a nice direct descendant of that film as well, the Nazi youth and Bob Fosse's Cabaret. So (laughs) it's this whole, it's a real nice sort of um, streamlined kind of thing that's going on there. There's a bloodline, isn't there? Like with evil kids correlating to gangs and um, sort of, you know, alienated, angry youth. Um, uh, and the Nazi youth movement, it's really kind of scary. Like, there's a correlation there. Absolutely, there is. And you see that happening again and again in later films as well. Yeah. Um, it's great you've brought up ni- the class of 1984 as an example. Although I would say I'd call them um, uh, evil teens. Yes, exactly. They're not that, kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, not, they're not kids. That, yeah. yeah, that's a much bigger category because we all know that teens are evil. Absolutely, <laughs> that's right. The the Reagan era, I like to call it, like the, the, as in Ron, Reagan um, McNeil. <laughs> you know the the cusp of the cusp the cusp of turning uh, into a teenager, right? So she's thirteen, about to be thirteen. But um, yeah, going back to your um, that's beautiful. So you've done a lot of research, obviously, on Nazi youth. Um, before that though, before say the rise of Nazism and before Nazism sort of makes an imprint onto film culture and theatre culture, etc. What about naughty children? Because I know you've done a lot of stuff on say silent era film and sure into, into the thirties. And, you know, we, um, Craig and I did a panel along with Aloise Ross, another person who I'll get on this show. And we did a panel discussion on black and white friendships in classic cinema. And one of the examples that Craig brought up was the beautiful Our Gang films, which I just adore. They're beautiful mm. films. Those and the Dogville shorts and the Pete Smith shorts, all those stuff, that stuff I grew up with and just love the Three Stooges, all that stuff. Um, but the Our Gang, you know, had that beautiful collective um, bunch of kids, those misfit kids, you know, and they're all hanging out. But they were also naughty. But you have a whole... Um, a discussion in your thesis on naughty children who were kind of the precursors to the evil kids, right? Is that correct? Or They were. They were indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're actually um, a product of um, uh, 19th century literature, um, post-Civil post, um, War 19th century literature. So you had... Um, oh, I can't remember his name now. What is it? Um, oh, it's... Um, Thomas Bailey Aldrich, I think his name is. Um, he was he wrote a story in 1960, published a book called The Story of a Bad Boy, which is sort of this um, uh, semi-autographic story about him growing up um, in a place called Portsmouth. Um, and he'd been sent up to live with his, his grandfather up there uh, and go to a finishing school, if that's what you would call it, um, and, uh, and then get ready to join the, the commerce workforce. Um, and that's, that book is often considered the first of the novels that became really popular during the, um, uh, second half of the 19th century. Um, uh, so you had things like Peck's Bad Boy and, uh, a little bit later, The Adventures of Penrod and, um, Boys on the Prairie, um, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, um, Boys Town, all these different stories that were coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they were all about uh, what were called bad boys, and these these were called the bad boy books. Um, and uh, one of my favourites is a couple of short stories by um, Mark Twain, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them is called um, the bad uh, the story of a bad boy. Um, and then there's the story of the good boy who came to no good or something, something like that. Um, you can find these online. They're everywhere. Uh, if you put in uh, Mark Twain, the story of a good boy and the story of a bad boy, these will come up and you can read them yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really delightful stories, very funny. And one of the things that Mark Twain was doing and some of the other writers was actually poo-pooing and rejecting and disavowing some of the um, ecclesiastical, didactic um writings that had existed for a couple of centuries about children. So the books about children were usually always these stories that were um, highly, they were were moral stories. They were about if you step out of line, then God will punish you. If you go go swimming on on Sunday when you should be at church, you will drown. Um, (laughs) Wow. So so the, the, the books that were kind of a response to that or, you know, giving a big up yours to those were books and stories that let children be children, right? They were, they were. Yeah. They, were look, they were also um, uh, motivated by um, nostalgia because you mm-hmm. have, um, you know, post-Civil War, a lot of these writers were from the South and so the South had completely changed um, post-war and there was this whole sort of longing for the, um, uh, the antebellum age um, and so most of these books were set during the antebellum period um, when, you know, you had this sort of southern, for, for whites anyway, this southern utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, certainly like you think about um, Tom Sawyer is a good example of that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so when um, um, silent cinema started, uh, 1895, and then you started, it came to America and you, um, you had people like... Um, um, Edwin S. Porter and um, and that ilk beginning to make films. Mm-hmm. They made a whole bunch of films that were um, about bad boys, and these were called bad boy films. And mm-hmm. so they took their name from the novels. Um, and so uh, even the first one of the first films ever made or exhibited anyway uh, to a paying audience, and so is considered part of that group of films that are considered the uh, beginning of cinema is um, the Lumiere's film um, uh, Le Jardinaire or um, uh, La Rose Arrosée is its other name, uh, which, which translates as the sprinkler sprinkled about the little boy who stands on the hose, um, stops the flow of water. The gardener who's been busy, busy um, watering his plants looks into the hose, boy takes his foot off, there's a spray, and uh, the gardener runs after the kid, right. gives him a paddywhack, and then that's the end of the, right. the uh, film. And that was exhibited as one of ten of the first films that the Lumieres exhibited to the public um, in December 1895. And that date is is um, often acknowledged as the beginning of cinema as we understand it. Because um, you have a paying audience, you have something being projected, a moving image, and so on and so on. Right. Um, it, it being adver- advertised. Um, and... So that film, when it was released in the US, was actually called The Bad Boy and the Gardener. Right. And so, so even from the very first French film, you have this whole sort of bad boy thing going on, this motif happening. And you have lots of girls who are playing up as well, but it's, um, it's often mostly boys. And that was really not just popular in the US, but also incredibly popular in 
um, in the UK, incredibly mm-hmm. so. And the French did their own as well. But um, the UK especially, um, you had a lot of um, uh, filmmakers doing stuff. Um, I went to BFI to have a look at some of them uh, back when I was doing my research for the PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were so they were so interesting. Anyway, look, I've just... No, that's fine. I wanted to ask, as a kid, I remember growing up watching um, a lot of that kind of stuff where, um, like, say, for instance, Tom Sawyer, etc., where you see um, little boys of class divisions uh, really butting heads. So you have kind of snooty, rich kid boys who are naughty in one way, they're manipulative, they're really kind of cagey in their, their meanness and um, uh, sneakiness, they're, you know, very secretive about being... Um, mean bastards and then you have the poor kids or the, the you know the sort of working class kids who are always seem they always seem to get into trouble they might not be naughty per se but they always seem to fall into some kind of you know grief and mischief um do you remember that growing up do you remember seeing that divide as well like little kids kind of um either being really really kind of um uh manipulative and um you know knew how to handle the adults and then the sort of other kid that falls into being um, conceived, sorry, not conceived, but um, uh, per- perceived, sorry, as naughty, but they're actually not. They're just sort of unfortunate kids. Yeah, look, uh, you're right. There's, uh, and that's something that came up as well. It's really interesting because because those those conniving ones mm. who knew how to manipulate adults as well, they they sort of their legacy is then the Hitler Youth mm. sort of take them from them, um, and they're very different. Um, Whereas the other um, naughty kids who are just, um, they're the ones who are playing jokes on adults, such as the kids stepping on the hose. Yeah. Um, they're sort of a different variety. They're the kids who just, um, they're bucking against the system, mm-hmm. against the man. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, that's one of the reasons why they were so popular in the UK as well, because you've got a class system there. Yeah. And, and so... Um, a lot of audiences who were watching those films were from the lower class because they could afford this entertainment. And so they were seeing um, tramps and, um, and little kids um, getting the better of these um, conspicuously dressed uh, middle-class types mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, making them fall down and all sorts of things or stealing their kids or stealing something from them and just making them suffer in some way. And the audiences tended to really identify with them. And so... Um, children especially because they are part of the lowest part of lowest branch of the um, um, social pecking order mm-hmm. they sort of uh, identified with them and mm-hmm. so that's a really interesting element of them but um, the films that you talk about um, I don't know things like um, uh, the Edward Klein film Peck's Bad Boy from 1934 mm-hmm. um, is one good example of that and um, you had um, Jackie Searle do you remember Jackie yeah Searle? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, he, he used to play little snot noses, and he was so good at it. Yeah, like there was. Um, he made a career out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the films was um, the 1931 film uh, directed by Norman Torog. He did a few films with kids uh, called Skippy, um, that stars Jackie Cooper and uh, Mitzi Green, who played this precocious little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jackie Searle again. And Searle was, as I said before, he's just a complete snot nose and was really, really good at playing these um, surly characters. So he has a good name for, for what yeah. he is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, Peck's Bad Boy is a really interesting film because um, that's in that one, um, Jackie Cooper um, and his father are 
best mates. Um, they get along so well. And at the start, there's this scene where they're at the at this club together, this hus- this um, fathers and sons club, and um, and he gets up and makes this fantastic speech about how much he loves his dad and what a great guy he is and how he models himself after his dad. And then um, and his father is a widower, um, and uh, he agrees to have um, his sister come and live with them, who has a son whose name uh, is Horace, played by Searle. And um, and they come in and Searle takes great delight in telling um, Bill that he is adopted <laughs> and actually, actually takes over his room, moves him out and just throws his stuff out and um, basically alienates uh, poor Bill from the family and eventually Bill runs away mm. and then has one of those... Uh, really important conversations with a homeless guy who just who gives him the wisdom, and he goes back again, and it all comes out in the wash. And uh, and um, Bill's father tells um, Horace and his mum to move on, um, and uh, all is made right in the world. But it, that's a, a fantastic melodrama that will bring tears to your eyes. Mm. I tell you what, um, Jackie Cooper was so good at doing that. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely was. Um, I talked about um, Jackie Searle in uh, a commentary I did for Alice in Wonderland, the 1933 one. He played the Dormouse um, in that. <laughs> you, you, you don't see his face at all. It was like he's in this wonderful, elaborate costume. But, um, yeah, really cool to be able to sort of, you know, champion his work. This kind, this character actor as a kid, you know, you forget that children were, you know, character actors. You know, you want the snotty, nasty little prick, get him, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. It's really amazing that children also built careers out of playing a type. Um, yes, they did. Yeah. And, he, and he's one of the few who, who then graduated into adulthood and then became... Um, uh, the editor in Superman. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's oh it's Jackie Co- Jackie Cooper did yes. Jackie Cooper yes. Yeah. yes. That's right. Perry White. That's right. Um. So I wanted to talk. So we're talking about sort of salt, naughty kids, sort of on their own, or rogue naughty kids. But I want to mm. talk about groups or the idea of uh, kids sort of forming uh, not so much cults, I guess per se, but little groups, little little um, collectives of naughty children. And one that springs to mind isn't a horror film. It's um, the MGM beautiful Vincent Minnelli musical Meet Me in Saint Louis, which has that fantastic Halloween sequence where the children um, with little Margaret O'Brien do the most horrible or they're, they're, they're burning a whole bunch of things in a bonfire and little, um, little Tootie has to go and throw the flower and, uh, at the, sort of the cantankerous old man that lives in the neighbourhood. Um, that scene used to haunt me as a kid and I, I, I watch that movie every year um, around Christmas time and it's such a phenomenal sequence and so moving and gripping and creepy. Um, and the way it's shot and the way it's designed and the way it's lit, you know, Manali never made an unattractive film. I mean, the man painted with film. But also, um, it's nice descendant to um, uh, the Arthur Freed musical, produced musical um, Babes in Arms, which had Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. And there's a really elaborate wonderful sequence um where the kids well they're teenagers uh have this big bonfire and it's you know it's a sort of um them trying to reclaim or claim their youth um and sort of you know uh, pushing aside their ad- their adults' parents um, and trying to re- to claim their own life or uh, or forge their own path by doing this sort of big sort of really ritualistic sequence with through song and through burning um, and it's really interesting to watch those two films 
simultaneously because it's very similar. It's like a teenage version and then the children's version uh, and both starring Garland, which is quite interesting. But also I loved those movies because it was the first time I sort of saw teens or young kids breaking away um, because you got that a lot come the 70s and 80s. But in the 30s and 40s, you get it, but it's, you know, it's few and far between where kids are kind of angry, um, you know, even though they look like they're dressed like their parents, <laughs> but they, they are sort of angsty and coming into their own and being teenagers. Um, and then you get to the 50s and finally you have a teenage world, I guess. Um, but I love that sequence in Meet Me in St. Louis and I always sort of liken it to a mini horror film. It's a mini little monster show for ghoulish children dressed in drag. It's so weird. It's and, Oh, yeah. look, it's fantastic. I love it when Tootie goes up to the, to the door and then he's there at the door. Um, Mr. Brockhoff, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's like, well, what is it? <laughs> and uh, she throws the flower at him and she says in that little impish voice, you know, I hate you, Mr. Brockhoff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so good. And the poor old um, bulldog licking up the flower. <laughs> But yeah, no, really cool stuff. So what, what, where do you see, because I know, um, you know, 90% of your studying has been generally in the realm of horror, because that's where evil children primarily live. But you obviously have discussed, you know, naughty children stuff. Where do you see Meet Me Inside, that sequence in Meet Me Inside Louis in um, correlation to a horror film and horror cinema? Because it's a Halloween sequence, it's got that great score, it's moody. Where do you see that fit in? Uh, look, that's a great question. That was made in 1944, the same year as Tomorrow the World. Mm. And so there are those elements of the Nazi stuff there as well. So I, I think that the whole, the one of the reasons why they left the Brockhoff stuff in there, because they were umming and ahhing about it, was because Brockhoff, of course, is a, a obviously German name. And mm. this is whole sort of assault from the child. Uh, uh, this moment of um, defeating and attacking the Germans in that moment. It's mm. kind of interesting. Sorry, I keep on bringing it back to that. But no, that's okay. Uh, look, that's, uh, I love Meet Me in St. Louis. Um, Tootie especially is this really strange child. She has these funerals for her dolls. Mm. And then at the end, uh, when... Two, after, decade, two decades before Wednesday Adams, you know? Yeah, seriously. Amazing. Mm. Um, and uh, when Garland sings the beautiful rendition of um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas mm. and Tootie is just dissolving in tears like us... Uh, and then runs down, has a look at the um, the effigies, the um, the, um, the, snow the family people. made out of snow people. Yep. And she and she grabs a tool and starts just um, smashing them, and she is um, hyster hysterical with grief. Yeah. Um, Realising that she can't take these things with her to New York, and she's just inconsolable. And it's such a uh, incredible scene. Um, and you'd probably know something about how they got. Tootie into that got Margaret O'Brien into a state where she was just like that. Um, but um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is uh, is a comment made by um, the wonderful Robin Wood. Uh, and in an essay he wrote, a couple of essays he wrote on horror films, he talks about meeting in St. Louis, in St. Louis and what an important film it is in the um, in um, mapping. The, the shift from melodrama and comedy into horror, mm -hmm. and and where he considers he considers the family to be um, nested best in horror, and that's its natural home. Uh, and he says, you watch a film like Meet Me in St. Louis, and it's wanting to be horror, 
Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you bring it up and you talk about those horror elements the way you do because it's, it's exactly what Wood says. Yeah, and I, I feel like the visuals in that sequence absolutely inform the way Carpenter shoots Halloween. Um, the the mooding the, the 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 use of wind, um, the use of the movement of leaves, um, the camera angles. It it looks like if you watch those two, in, you know, in a Brian De Palma style split screen, and you watch say that sequence, and then just you know, um, Jamie Lee Curtis walking through the streets of, of Haddonfield, and you know this sort of halcyon suburbia that almost pond-like horror that's happening and everything's so subtle and under the surface, you can see elements that are very similar. It's a beautiful, beautiful visual style that is used by two, I will call masters. Definitely Nelly's a master and Carpenter is in his own right as well. You know, they're, they're amazing filmmakers. But I think um, the, the, sorry, you were talking about the um, the sequence where she's smashing down the, the um, snow people, what always gets me is the message that Garland gives. So she goes, um, we'll always be home as long as we're together. Um, and that's sort of, that brings that film back home, you know, and that's the, that's the essence of it. And that's really touching after all this really kind of, you know, uh, not histrionic because it's pure, pure, but hysterical, you know, crazy kind of outburst of this child, this really highly emotional child, you know, and she's quite, she's quite deranged, <laughs> like, if you think about her. Well, during all those dolls, she's got, she's really morbid. Yeah, she is. Yeah. She is. And at the start, she's already, like, talking about a doll dying of seven fatal diseases or whatever, so she's a really morbid kid, yeah. <laughs> she really is. It's well, a. Cra- you were talking before about the Halloween stuff, and... Uh, the thing that I think sometimes gets forgotten um, in what I've read, um, and it's because it is spoken about and not shown, and that is where she throws out the dummy in front of the um, uh, the trolley car, and the trolley car has to break suddenly and actually comes off the tracks and derails. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's the next door neighbour. Who's that? Who's the next door neighbour? No, oh, the boy um, next door. Yeah, John. Is it John Truitt. Or yeah, something? yeah, yeah, John Truitt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how he has to save her and get her out of the way and and. Um, that's a story on its own about what how John gets into trouble with um, um, Judy Garland. Yeah. Um, but uh, what's interesting about that for me is when I think about throwing a life-sized mannequin in front of uh, an oncoming vehicle, I, could, I just go, well, that's the good son for you right there. Right. And, yeah, let's go. We go, have to wait until 1993 before a kid does it again. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the 90s. Let's jump from the 40s to the 90s. What do you think? And I, I don't know. I've just noticed it from just, you know, loving these movies. Um, what do you think was happening uh, in the culture at the time um, that sort of had this weird boom of evil kid movies come the early 90s? You had films like um, uh, The Good Son, Mikey, The Paperboy. Um, Dolly Dearest has aspects of the evil kid, you know, the, the, the doll influencing her. Uh, Pinocchio's Revenge as well, another one with an evil doll and kid. Um, you had things like um, Daddy's Little Darling. Uh, there was all these, this, this wave of like naughty, evil children movies. What do you think was happening at the time to sort of bring this in? Uh, well, I think that um, uh, these that Monster Child um, from the get-go has always been a part of cinema, as talked about before with yeah. uh, the Lumieres, and that it's, it's never actually departed, and it just comes in waves. And so you had what you were talking about, the uh, the post-Reagan uh, wave, and you had before that the uh, the post... Um, Rota. Uh, ro- the post-Rota wave. Mm. And I think, I guess we've got something similar happening again. Yeah. Um, and 
so there's uh, one writer, Ziv- Vivian Sobchak, she talks about, um, she says that 1968 was a really important year because yes. you had two very important cinematic children who were born. You mm-hmm. had The Star Child mm-hmm. from 2001 mm-hmm. and you had Rosemary's Baby mm-hmm. and uh, starts to then talk about this within an intergeneric context about um, uh, these starting representations of, um, of children uh, being evil as part of an expression or a, a reactionary expression of the counterculture mm-hmm. and the conservative um, sort of response to that. Um, I did mean to say before when we were talking about Meet Me in St. Louis, and I forgot to mention it, is one of the important things that um, Robin Wood mentions in his uh, article is that he jumps forward to 1968 as well, but to Night of the Living Dead and mm. says that um, just like we see like I was saying before about 2D being sort of representative of um, uh, the good son uh, in 93. So he was saying that uh, she, when she's um, hacking up the snow people, that that's like Karen in um, Night of the Living Dead hacking up her mother with the trout. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely insight. And he was writing that like in 1971. So, yeah. Woo-hoo. Yeah, um, go Robin. <laughs> oh, go Robin. Great writer, yeah, him. and Vivian um, as well. I love that essay you're re- referring to from hers, the um, the 1968, the important year of the two births. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so look, why this was? Ha- oh, I think one of the reasons why you have um, in the 90s this the um, sort of the reawakening of the monster child might be what happened with um. um uh, What's it, John Venables and um, what's his name? John Venables and Robert Thompson, the two boys, the two ten-year-old boys who killed. Ah, yes. Um, uh, Jamie, uh, James Bolger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's testing my memory. Um, I do wonder if that played a role in sort of reigniting interest in that. Mm. Um, yeah, because it was just so. It's like, it's it's a monster child film come uh, come to life. Mm. And also, um, early 90s, you have um, high school shootings and stuff like that as well. Um, there was the shooting in Canada that um, the young boy that shot up the girls that were in the engineering class, which kind of inadvertently would spark um, the fuel for what would become the right girl movement. Um, you know, things like, you know, boys being just horrendous on campus and, you know, really mean and nasty to girls um, and, that's, you know, being fed up, I guess, with feminism um, and just being, you know, uh, sort of antagonistic to girls and then erupting into horrible violence. So it's high school shootings and all that sort of stuff was probably playing into people's consciousness. And then also maybe like um, uh, the like a resurgence of fear of birth because there was the fear of birth movies happening as well, the French film Baby uh, Blood, um, yeah. you know, things like and that were happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there was all those films as well. Um, so it's really interesting just to see that wave in the 90s of these evil kid movies. But I want to talk about The Good Son, because um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but was that film, um, did Macaulay Culkin's father want him to do that because he wanted to sort of <laughs> get his son away from being trapped by being um, the, you know, the Home Alone kid, which is also another naughty kid. Like, he's pretty much doing friggin' lots of damage to Joe Pesci and... and <laughs> Oh yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, I love, I love um, um, Home Alone, and I love what um, what's his name, um, William Paul has to say about Home Alone, and says, you know, the the, the last fifteen minutes of Home Alone 
uh, is pretty much like the last 15 minutes of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's, you know, all those booby traps that yeah. um, Heather Langenkamp sets up are exactly the same as Colkin sets up. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the Good Son. The Good Son. Um, yeah, look, from my, my understanding is that, uh, yeah, um, Mr. Colkin, the wonderful Mr. Colkin, whatever his name is, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that he did um, advise his son to do this as a way of. Um, sort of moving away from the Cusick kid and getting ready for a career as an adult. Mm. Yeah, not sure it worked. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that movie? I haven't seen it for a long time. Neither have I, to tell you the truth, because my all my research has been elsewhere. But yeah. um, you know, he, uh, I think, for a lot of people, interestingly, more than uh, the chaos he causes, is the fact that you hear Kelly Culkin use the word "fuck" right when he says, "Don't fuck with me," and. So a lot of conversations that were happening about, did you hear the language? Uh, and it's, it's like, well, come on. But uh, also that's sort of giving us uh, some insight into uh, how audiences wanted to be um, shocked at that time as well. Interesting. It's kind of regressive because we've already really had that with Reagan and The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, let's talk about The Exorcist. How, how much does The Exorcist sort of... Um, feature in your in your thesis in your massive um work it's been it's a 60 year um uh process right six years of working six on six years six years of working on this thing yeah. my god yes yeah. <laughs> so the exit never end yeah so i mean we, you and i have discussed the exorcist in person many a time and one thing that i really loved about what you've said about it is, and it kind of was in response to what I was saying about the costuming in a scene, and and we'll talk about this because that's what we're doing. <laughs> but when when Chris McNeil finally um, meets up with uh, Karis, she's wearing the the, the kerchief, um, and it, it ser- I feel like that costuming serves a double purpose because on one hand it's this famous actress trying to hide from the world and hide her grief and her desperation and just not be seen, and she actually tells him to go away before he introduces himself himself as Karis but then it also kind of harks back to what women would look like in you know eastern European villages where possession would be something that people believed in so it's like she's regressing back to this time where you know she would be a mother in a small you know Italian village saying my daughter's possessed etc but then also what happened and what happens is later in that sequence in that in that great dialogue um, to Handa is Karis says I'd have to take you to a into a time machine and take you back in time because that doesn't happen anymore. So it plays at that. And then you had the most profound thing in response to that. You said that um, that quote or that line is really cool because the next time we see Reagan, she's strapped to the bed and there's nothing in her room, nothing that represents anything to do with 73. You know, there's no record player, there's nothing, no dolls. It's just her bedroom. It's a stark, you know room like a little old village and and i love that like yeah so i just want to talk a bit about the exorcist in response to that kind of thing where it is really playing with um the notion of um it's a displaced um horror you know one of the earliest lines that Merrin says not of this time not of you know when he's finding the medallion in northern iraq it's like this this monstrous element of this film is displaced in time oh Lee, can you just keep talking? Because I just want to hear you talk more about this. I want to hear you talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I think 
uh, one of the things about the ecstasis that's fascinating for me, and I had this particular love for it, is that I'd seen it quite a few times before I actually saw it uh, in a cinema setting, and mm-hmm. that was at the Valhalla when it used to exist. Uh, and the Valhalla very kindly turned the sound right up, and it scared me in a way I hadn't been scared by it before. Mm. Um, and it's a little bit like, I suppose, the um, the sound design uh, when um, Agent Starling first meets um, uh, Hannibal mm. uh, in that dungeon in Demi's version um, of Silence of the Lambs. Well, it's the only version, isn't it? Um, and how that sound design is itself just terrifying. Uh, and so when I saw that in the movies, I was like, oh, this is so freaky. And then I saw it again on video. It was like, what was I getting scared about? Because I couldn't hear it. Right. And the sound design in um, in The Exorcist, did it win an Academy Award? It did, yeah. And deservedly so, because it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of grades to the sounds. And um, you were mentioning before about Reagan's bedroom. And... Uh, before it is stripped of everything, um, uh, if you turn the sound up and listen to it, maybe through headphones, you will hear all the sounds of technology that, that are in there, such as um, the light, um, uh, the way it's um, the sort of whirring sound it makes, um, the buzzing sound, and also this interesting bubbling and buzzing that coming from her fish tank. Right. Um, and so all that, of course, is gone as well. Um and all we are left with is uh, Reagan's voice, that um, that strange, unearthly um, gasping. It's amazing. It's yeah, I, as you say, it's um, it is a time machine that we get into and go back to this um, sort of this primitive set um, that has been stripped of everything. It's an amazing scene. Yeah, absolutely. And also, everyone's stripped of things as well. Um, the Chris McNeil character's stripped of glamour as the film progresses. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, and, and humanity, characters are stripped of humanity. It's, a, it's a, 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 look, we can't go on and on about it because I think it's over-talked about, but I like different aspects about it. Uh, oh, sorry, hearing different um, aspects about it. What I love that people sort of ignore is the fact that it's about show business as well. Like, Chris McNeil's in is an actress, and I love the devil's obsession with with um, with film and film industry and the arts in that kind of wave of horror films. You know, Guy Cassavetes is a struggling actor in Rosemary's Baby, and Alan Alders, this amazing musician in the in um, uh, the Mephisto Waltz, and you know, the devil's got an attraction to people in the arts. I think that's quite, that's something to be said about that. And Chris, yeah, and Chris McNeil's one of those people. Um, so that you know, would obviously generate a whole wave of evil children movies. Um, one that comes out around the same period in the 70s is one I really love, and I know you do as well, and it sort of taps into Nazi youth as well because it's about a group of boys led by one named Chief who um, uh, champions Nietzschean kind of philosophies, the sort of... Um, uh, and the Superman sort of theory where, you know, being a perfect ultimate young person is the ultimate and if you age, you should be dead kind of thing. And that's Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea, um, which with Chris Christopherson and Sarah, um, Sylvia, uh, Sarah Miles. What a film. Do you love that film? 
Yeah, you do. Do I love that film? That is such a disturbing film. I yeah. love it. <laughs> I love this sort of this this creepy coming of age thing that happens as well when he's spying upon his mum oh, in yeah. this sort of primal moment. Yeah. And then she finds out, and you and this feeling of a violation from her own son. It's like wow. Yeah. Let alone what they do to the poor cat. Oh the yeah. Seagull. I know. That's a scene I can't watch. Too much, but yeah, amazing, amazing film. So moody, and the end, the the way that they sort of discard uh, Mr. Chris Christopherson, where they kill him, is is phenomenal. So it's so creepy, and it's very similar to another one that I love, Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, with the way that um, Jodie Foster kills um, Martin Sheen, and it sort of lingers, and she's poisoning him. What I mean, that's another chilling, beautiful parlor room horror film. You know, set in the the little house, the cabin, the house, and um, him being a pedophile adds an element of ugliness and sickliness as well to it. But just a really chilling film as well. Great performances as well from the kids. Yeah. Well, you, was, you know, you were saying before about groups of kids and you've got around uh, around the same time, same year, you've got um, Who Can Kill a Child? Oh, and yeah. then, then you've got um, uh, Devil Times Five before that. Mm-hmm. And, oh, some really great films from that period. Absolutely. So Devil Times Five. Let's talk about that one. That's very much a home invasion film, uh, very much influenced by the Manson family. So, do you have what do you what do you, what are your thoughts on that movie? Uh, I don't have a lot of thoughts on it apart from um, what's his name, Leaf Leaf Garrett. Yep. Yeah, that Leaf Garrett is, and I'm like, look, it's Leaf Garrett. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a heartthrob later. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a, um, a a teen idol. Yeah, um, uh, piranhas in the fri- in the in the bath. Um, <laughs> yep. You know, insane. I just I love how you have these five psychotic children. Mm. Like, don't th- don't think anything of it uh, until they escape from the bus, and then suddenly, you know, all hell breaks loose when they do a home invasion, and man, and then it turns into as you were saying, the Manson family. I hadn't even made that connection before. Yeah, right. I just always thought it just sort of made sense to me that had that kind of Manson-esque quality. Um, of course it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and um, the other film that you mentioned was Who Can Kill a Child, which, oh, my God, like, can you be a more beautiful film? Like, you know, what I mean, picturesque and gorgeous and, you know, the sun-kissed beaches of Spain and it looks so beautiful and then this horrendous you know, happenings on these beaches in the piñata. and <laughs> But the opening title sequence is something as well, much like the cat death scene in Sailor Who Up From Grace of the Sea. I just can't watch the real-life footage of the, you know, the sort of devastating effects of war and various oh. wars on children and children's bodies and then to have this film where children reclaim it all and get their revenge in a sense, you know. Oh, just amazing stuff. Powerful. One of- one of the things that uh, I think is interesting about that film as well is its um, love affair with um, the birds, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Absolutely. You, get, you know, the kids are like, you know, they might as well have little claws where they're perching, you know, looking down at these people as they're, as, um, this couple as they're running around trying to get out of um, El Montadora, I think the place is, this island. Um, yeah, incredible, incredible film. Um, the, the, the idea that a, um, uh, a child would kill itself in order to kill its host uh-huh. Uh, is amazing when uh, I don't know if we should say because there's people out there who maybe haven't seen it and um, that's and true. But we've already given away endings to other films. Kind of <laughs> <has>. Yeah, 
Oh well, I'll just put up a big spoiler alert thing on the on the prefix. That's on the preface. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, I do know the scene you're talking about, and what? Because uh, I remember seeing that for the first time and wondering um, why the little girl's whispering to the swollen belly. You know, I'm like, oh, that's you know, that's quite nice and sweet and tender and cute. And then, ah, oh, yeah, there's the payoff. <laughs> yeah. It's and what a hell of a payoff. It's yeah. Insane. Yeah. yeah. It's brilliant. That's- that, that's an incredible film. And Birds is interesting as well, because you think about the trailer that um, Alfred Hitchcock made for that, where he's, you know, looking at all these different objects there and, um, and at a roast chicken and at a birdcage and as a, at a feathered hat and all these different things. And how he's sort of being really, really tongue-in-cheek, really ironic, saying, you know, birds are our friends. Birds are wonderful. Mm. Look at all the things that we get from birds. And he's basically talking about how we exploit the hell mm-hmm. out of these feathered creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like what happens at the start in the opening credits of um, of uh, Who Can Kill a Child, where, as you were saying, uh, you have all these children who are victims of war and conflict, and it's and uh, and it's almost like the trailer. Um, and it's of course asking that question, who can kill a child? And it's like, well, everybody can, as it turns out, mm. and we do it all the time. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's actually quite a pro-child film, really. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, it's and it's and a that, ma- masterpiece. It is a masterpiece, and that fantastic ending. Um, yeah. Which have you seen um, the the uh, two thousand and eight film, The Children? Um, is that the one with the virus? It is. Yeah, the, it's, uh, it's set in the snow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that very is that very uh, conspicuously conspicuously takes its um, uh, takes a, a page from Who Can Kill a Child. Right, and Who Can Kill a Child did have an American remake, didn't it? Um, Come and play, come out and play, or something. Oh, the Mexican guy with the one name, Spanish guy or something. He has, I can't remember his name, but that was set in Mexico. Oh, was it? Uh, oh, okay. I, didn't, I haven't seen it. I thought it was. I just yeah. assumed it was an American remake. Yeah, come out and play, and it's pretty. It's pretty um, similar, and you'd be right in thinking because the couple in that, rather than being British or American, so. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. Mm. Yeah, cool. Well, the the lead guy was Australian. He um, was in uh, Dr. Jekyll and uh, Sister Hyde. Um, God, I've, my, I've gone blank on his name. But, um, yeah, he was great in that film. I don't think the director really liked him, though, um, from hearing some stories. Of, this is about who can kill a child, by the way. Yeah. But, yeah, um, but great performances. I love that. And also, it's interesting, I want to actually talk to you about this as well. It's interesting that, for, for the most part, most horror films from, say, the 60s onwards are very female-centric. They're about women and girls. Um, you know, it's a woman's experience or a young girl's experience or a teenage girl's experience, etc. But then there are a lot of um, subgenres of horror that tend to have men as kind of the protagonists who are being tormented. And in my uh, sort of research on um, ecological horror, a lot of them do have men featured as the leads. Um uh, so tormented, broken men, uh, usually adult, like, you know, with loss or alcoholism or um, trying, they're fumbling in the dark trying to get themselves together and they're forced to sort of face these animal attacks or what, whatnot. Whereas with um, e- uh, evil kid films, there's kind of a nice balance between women and men sort of being the leads and dealing with this monstrous child. And if you think of The Omen, um, you know, a pivotal example, that's his story you know lee remick absolutely has an arc but he's ultimately killed early and it's we followed gregory peck's character in who can kill a child the wife dies oh god i keep fucking ruining plots <laughs> but um it's about him ultimately you know what i mean so what's your take there that's kind of interesting sort of you know paternal paranoia 
Oh, you know what, Lee? I hadn't really thought about that before. I feel like this is something that um, uh, I need some time to think about. But the first, but I, having said that, that, one of the things that comes to mind, I guess, is um, what's the um, uh, George C. Scott um, ghost story? The from Changeling. 1980. The Changeling. Yeah. One of my favourite horror films. Jeez, that's good. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, so you have somebody who is course dealing with uh, the loss of their own family and, and the grief there, and because because of their grief, they're uh, somehow open to the supernatural. Um, yeah, so that's an extraordinary film. But um, I also can't think of, can't help but thinking of um, Mary Lambert's um, adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. and that's very much about the man as well. Mm. So um, I I don't know if I have an opinion on why there are uh, a great deal of men um, as leads in this yet, because it's something I actually haven't thought about, and that's a really, really compelling point, Lee. I'd love to um, think on that some more. Cool. What about, I just mentioned eco-horror, and you mentioned the birds. Mm. I love your writing and your um, take on children and the children in the birds, um, Veronica Cartwright, um, and then the, in correspondence to the bird attacks. Um, because I see the birds um, as, you know, classic example in, in terms of ecological horror where an outsider has come into a situation and, and disturbed the natural order and inadvertently has ushered in this, these attacks because she's disturbing this natural order and um, posing a threat to other characters, namely, primarily um, Jessica Tandy. But I love your um, beautiful insight between the correlation between the children and the birds. And also, just as to digress, I love that Veronica Cartwright also stars in The Children's Hour, which is, you know, the, the second telling of the Lillian Hellman play after these three from uh, decades earlier, um, but retold with the um, lesbian content in place. Um, and the uh, Mary character being one of the most vicious, evil children of movies as well. But, yeah. Oh, she's horrible. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And we'll talk yeah. about both, but let's start with the birds. I'd love to hear um, your take on the birds in response to children um, and in correlation with the, the bird attacks. Sure. Well, um, the, the reason why I said some of what I did in my article on the birds was because of, uh, because I used to teach it at university, at, the, at um, La Trobe University quite often, how we use that as our, um, as our uh, case study film on editing. So I've seen it so many times, um, and and having to teach it as well, you're looking at it through a analytic lens rather than just sitting there and really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't mean you can't sit and enjoy a film when you're analysing. My goodness me! Um, but um, it occurred to me that despite the fact that you have um, uh, Melody Melody Daniels' character say that. Uh, you know, she says, why, why were the children attacking them? And she says, well, to kill them. Uh, the film doesn't actually kill any kids. And you have lots of adults being killed mm. um, by the birds or, or attacked in ways that then maybe become fatal. So we certainly have two adult deaths and children who are far more um, vulnerable than adults, none of them die. Mm. And if, and so that got me thinking about, well, why is this the case? And of course, there's the, I love this sort of um, interesting um, correlation between uh, the birds made in 1963 and then change those um, numbers around. You've got 1936 
and that film was called Sabotage. Um, and uh, it's a fascinating film um, and a great sort of pairing with the birds because, well, uh, you have a scene that's set in a bird shop, in a bird store, um, and, um, and a bird cage plays an important role in smuggling some, um, some dynamite. Um, that plays a really important role in the film. Uh, and um, there's a little boy named Stevie, played by Desmond Tester, uh, who's this great kid, and he is given a parcel to um, take to the station, I think um, uh, Waterloo Station or somewhere, that is a bomb. And uh, he doesn't know that it's a time bomb set to, set up, set to go off at a certain time, and he's just told to take it. And the assumption is that he will take it and then come back. But... He gets waylaid along the way and distracted by all sorts of things, street vendors and performances and all sorts of stuff, and gets on this on a on a bus and is playing with a puppy or a kitten or something, um, being held by this uh, female passenger beside him, and then the bomb goes off and he's killed, and it's devastating because he's such a great kid and uh, as per um, the way melodramas work, uh, you make somebody suffer. Who is a um, who is an innocent, mm. and it just it just um, hits home the tragedy of it all. Mm-hmm. And uh, this film was so tragic that audiences turned on Hitchcock, and uh, and from then on in, if ever he had children in films, he was very very careful wow. to make sure they didn't suffer too much. And right? So he was, yeah, that's um, really interesting. So he he um, uh, English audiences didn't like it at all, and they they voted with their money with their wallets and just said no 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 no. I'm trying to think of other examples. Like, I mean, Doris Day's son, I guess, is kidnapped in um. Yeah, in, yeah, uh, yeah. In yeah. the the man who knew too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he is. Um, and then you have the birds, of course. Yep. And so these kids, um, they are attacked, uh, and there is a sense that they're in danger, but none of them are killed, and I I suppose you could make that correlation between that and poor Stevie and uh, Ian Sabotage. Um, but it's because of that that I started to look at the film in a different way. And um, Kathy's Party is a really interesting moment in the film where you have these these kids are playing Blind Man's Buff and then th- th- these kids are supposed to be touching her and then running off so they can't be... Um, so they can't be caught and then you have a bird joining in it's like there's a there's a game happening uh and none of the kids are of course hurt um by the birds in that scene there is one scratched face and that's about it Mm. um kids are more likely to hurt each other more than that when they play Mm. um and then of course there's the there's the school scene and they're all over the school um uh play equipment in in that film uh, in that scene um and then when um, uh, um, what's her name? Susan Pl- Oh, yeah, Melanie, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Tippi Hedren, yeah. yeah. When Melanie goes upstairs, uh, I've never thought about whose bedroom that was she goes into, but that's very conspicuously Kathy's bedroom. Ah. And uh, you go in and there's this, there's this kid's bed there and the birds are all over the bed and there's a hole above where the bed is and it's almost like the birds have... Um, have gone, come on, come with us, let's get out of here. <laughs> right. So there's all, So to me, there's almost a, uh, there's a, an affinity between the children and animals and the birds being like that. So, and the, when the birds seemingly seem to be attacking the, um, the kids when they're running down the, uh, 
running away from the school. It's like the birds who have emerged from behind the school, so they look like they're coming out of the school, are going, get away from the school, get away from all this. You're being brainwashed. Enough. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and they're killing off the... That's really interesting, yeah. So, like, they're protectors of the children. Yeah, yeah. So, look, there's so many different interpretations of the birds, and so I thought I'd throw in my penny's worth and try to do something a little bit... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't... Yeah, you're so right. They always sort of appear around children or um, places that children occupy, um, where the, whether they be little parties um, in the backyard or the school... Um, so that's really fascinating. And then when they do their most destructive work, they're kind of at a place sort of more devo devoid of children, like the gas station and the diner. But then there's that mother with the two kids. That's really cool as well. The one that sort of um, screams at Tippi Hedren, um, you know, you're the cause of all this, which is going back to, to the eco-horror trope of the outsider influencing things. Because even, um, you know, uh, Sam Elliott cops it. Um, from Ray Milland, you know, none of this would have happened if you didn't come here um, in Frogs, uh, that kind yes. of thing. You know, that whole thing of these outsiders coming in and um, disturbing something. It's it's really cool. Even Jaws, you know, uh, Brody's displaced. He's from New York. Um, you know, why is he in Amityville? Uh, sorry, in Amity Island. And also um, the woman... <laughs> <laughs> the woman... <laughs> That'd be great if there was a crossover. Uh, but the when the woman says to Alan, you, you weren't born here, you'll never be an islander. So this whole thing of outsiders coming in and then, you know, monstrous happenings happen. Um, it's kind of like an interesting parallel. Yeah. Oh, look, I love that cafe scene, the Times oh, Cafe, uh, yeah. the restaurant in The Birds, and that woman who gets up, you know, um, what are you doing here? I heard they first came in your room. You're evil. 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 Yeah, really good. <laughs> and I love that she's, you know, the Hitchcock has deliberately um, uh, made that scene ambiguous so that, you know, we uh, narratively, we're, we're, think, we're uh, interpreting that as her talking to Tippi Hedren, but looking straight down the barrel of the camera. Mm. But she's really talking to us and the fact that we have this bloodlust and Bring on, bring it on, bring it on, more Hitchcock, and uh, and so Hitchcock sort of going, this is you guys are sick. Mm. Mm. It's great, it's lovely. Yeah, you guys want this violence, yeah. Which yeah. is which is uh, you know, and then you know, fast forward into the seventies, and you have the case of Christine Chubbuck, who shoots herself on television, and before she does that, she tells you know she reads her little editorial that she wrote, which is all about you know, oh, you want violence? Here you go. <laughs> Which, extraordinary yeah, thing. which, um, you know, obviously, you know, um, Network um, discusses as well as The Howling, you know, really interesting things there. But the media. Wow. Yes. And the yes. bloodlust, what you're talking about, the bloodlust of audiences. Um, speaking of uh, bloodlust, how am I going to tie this in? <laughs> but I get if, pe if people really hate gay people, they want to see them die on screen. And one of those um, classic examples is the Children's Hour, which features... How bad is that friggin' for a segue? But uh, the, the, evil, the evil kid in that film, um, Karen, Karen Balkin was the actress, right? And she's just nasty as Mary. But you, controversially, like the these three more. Is that I love these three. <laughs> yeah. That's, so can you ex explain to the audience what I mean by these three in the children's hour? What, what, in a nutshell, what 
what am I saying here? That one's a remake of one, or let's let's talk about that so they know what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, just so you know, Lillian Hellman uh, wrote a play uh, called The Children's Hour, and it's. Uh, essentially about two women who start a, a school um, that is a um, where the girls come to stay. What's that called when they, they sexually sleep on the premises? Boarding school. Um, boarding house. Boarding school. Yeah. Thank you. They start a boarding school. And it's in this small town and it's uh, actually really popular. And they're great teachers. And um, I think one of their mothers comes to, comes to stay as well. And she's this awful, awful thespian who's um, just so conceited. Auntie. Um, yeah, one of the aunts. Martha's aunt. One of the Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, the aunt. Yes, and then of course there's this new doctor who arrives as well, and um, and uh, and one of the um, the children who is placed in the boarding school is um, young girl. Uh, is it um, um, Mary? I think it is. Uh, is her name, and uh, she doesn't want to be there, and she's just a school refuser, and she. She's not allowed to get away with anything. So these are really good educators. They're not letting her get away with stuff. Mm. And she, her resentment is building up. And so she um, comes up with a lie about them um, and manufactures these thing, this thing. And so, uh, yeah, um, Lillian Hellman was dating Dashiell Hammett. Uh, and Dash had been reading this book on true crime stories. And one of them had to do with a case in Scotland. Uh, where there were a pair of women who had their own boarding school and uh, a, a rich woman in the town um, nearby uh, sent her um, her daughter to the school who had been orphaned uh, and she was from India. Uh, and I believe what had happened um, was uh, her own parents had been killed and her father had actually um, married an Indian woman. And so this, this child was um, uh, crossbred. Uh, between uh, Anglo-Indian. Um, and so she came to live with the grandmother in uh, in Scotland and um, she sent her to this school and this child um, fabricated this lie about this lesbian relationship between these two teachers and that then caused a controversy and the teachers went out of um, business. And the case went through the courts a couple of times and eventually they won, mm. but the... Um, but despite winning and getting their, their dignity and their names back, they'd lost all their money and so they, they died devastated, basically. Wow. Um, yeah, and so that's, that's the story that, um, that um, it's based on, um, The Children's Hour. And so when it, was, when it came time for Hollywood to want to make this into a film, by the way, when it was on stage, it was incredibly successful and it played um, in various places, but Boston was one place where they said, no, you can't open here. It's got lesbian stuff in it. Mm. Um, so even though these women weren't lesbians, there was this, uh, there is a, there is a conversation, there is a um, bit of dialogue where one of the women confesses her love for the other and says, through this lie, I've found my truth. Mm. Uh, and so there is this attraction there, but, you know, nothing is made of it beyond that. Um, but that was enough to, to, um, to drive some conservatives crazy and so they could never open in Boston. And so when it came time for it to be um, uh, adapted for the screen, the 1936 version was rechanged to the title These Three and instead of a lesbian, uh, instead of gossip about lesbianism, it becomes about a menage a trois, which I don't know is worse. Seriously. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's this, very... it's this heterosexual... Um love triangle instead of the, 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 the lesbian one. Yeah. 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 Crazy. 
Uh, so you have Miriam Hopkins, Merle Oberon, and Joel McRae, who are obviously um, having some sort of menage de trois, and the aunt who should come forward and say uh, uh, and and defend them at the court case disappears because it's all too controversial for her. Yeah. And so she's no help at all. Uh, and same thing happens as per the true story where the school falls apart and their lives are destroyed by this by this girl. And the reason why I prefer these three to um, The Children's Hour that came later, both directed by William Wyler, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I somehow think that he was really upset about the idea of not uh, doing um, a a more faithful adaptation. Yeah, yeah. And so wanted to get it right the second time. Your your preference to these three? I love them both, but um, I think I feel like I've seen the Children's Hour a lot more. Um, yeah. and I just that, that devastating um uh speech she gives at the end, I just really love. I really, it just hits hits home, and I I think it's just I don't know. There's something really powerful about, it and I really love um uh, love Faye Bainter as the grandmother. The sort of hard, stoic, you know, nasty grandmother who sort of realizes, you know, the truth by the end of it and feels sick by it. That great bit where she collapses on the floor, but also Miriam Hopkins popping up as the as the sort of nutsy auntie, the flippant theatrical auntie. But yeah, I, I do love these three as well, and the Mary and that is just as nasty. But what, 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 why do you prefer it? Would you say just the, the, the take on the story or performances or the look? Uh, to tell you the truth, it has to do with the kids and uh, the performances that uh, we get from Benita Granville, who is just fantastic. Mm. She's so diabolical in it and she's so, she's so mean. And that lovely slap she gets at the end on the top of the staircase is brilliant. <laughs> um, and, but also... Margaret um, Hamilton, who, wasn't it? Margaret Hamilton slapped Margaret it? Hamilton, yeah. yeah, isn't it great? Being slapped <laughs> by the witch, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's a long time coming and it's a really, it's a really satisfying moment. Yeah. Like, like a, a little bit like the, the paddywhack that... Um, Rhoda. ...at the end of the bad scene. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but also Marcia Mae Jones. I mean, like, she's so fantastic as the victim in this and how she is set up by... Um, by Mary. Mm. So, um, Marcy Mae Jones plays um, Rosalie Wells, who is um, Mary's um, roommate. Mm. And she and um, Mary um, blackmails Rosalie into um, to going along with her story um, and making this lie stick. And mm. it's just awful. And Rosalie's just, she's, oh, my heart goes out to her and she's gorgeous and finally it all comes out at the end. But, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's really the kids, I think, are a really important part of this um, this early film, which is why I love it so much. And of course, who can go past Margaret Hamilton? Seriously. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, yeah. and, you know, I love Marion Hopkins and Mel Oberon's performances. They, I think they play beautiful victims in this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Joel McRae is great. Um, I've done a recent commentary on The Virginian and just re- like re-watching a whole bunch of Joel McRae. He's one of those actors that I feel like um, uh, there's nothing showy about him and there's nothing distinctly... Um, Joel McRae about him like, do you know what I mean like you know your Gregory Pecks and your Gary Coopers and your Cary Grants have got uh, a certain style they've got this sort of um, self-made style and persona whereas Joel McRae is genuine article every man like there's he something really there's something really I, understated and, and just stoic and, and still about him yeah I agree there's this total actor for hire about that he's just really reliable and just this, this handsome guy who isn't about, look at me, but actually just serving the story. And yeah. Yeah, he's great. But look, 
I really like The Children's Hour as well. That bittersweet ending is incredible with Audrey Hepburn walking out of the cemetery and mm. just the defiance and the anger. And, and of course, you talked about Shirley MacLaine's amazing um, uh, speech in it where she's, uh, she's realising some home truths about herself. And it is heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing film. Yeah. So speaking of performances, some of your favourite evil kid performances. Oh, my God. Uh, well, some of them come from the, the silent era. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, <laughs> my favourites is um, one by James Stewart Blackton, who he co-established Vita, Vitagraph Studios back in the day, like in 1903 or something. Um, so he, he made a lot of, um, uh, naughty child films, right. um, little mischief, which is this great film. And you can watch some of these on YouTube as well. And they're very, very short. Um, you know, they're about 30 seconds long, right. um, but little mischief, you have this little girl who's creeping up behind her father, watching the, uh, reading the paper and he's, she's tickling him with a, with a straw or a feather or something. And he finally, uh, falls back blustering on his chair um, and so that sort of stuff is fun, is kind of fun. But later they develop into more sophisticated um, stories. And there's a whole bunch of Buster Brown um, films that were made uh, around 19, 1903 or so. And, they, and Buster Brown is a um, comic strip character that was created by Richard um, Oldcott, the comic book illustrator. Uh, and one of them is um, Buster's joke on Papa from 1903, um, directed by Blackton. And in that one, the mother buys some, some crabs from a vendor at the, back, at the um, back door of the house, puts them in the kitchen and Buster sees them and thinks, ha, oh, this will be fun, and goes and puts the crabs, there's live crabs, in his father's bed. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, and he's, of course, his father gets out of bed, it gets in bed and then jumps out and he's got crabs attached to every appendage and i mean every appendage and he's, and he's whirling around the room and um mum comes in and, and buster comes in laughing but mum comes in trying to get the grabs off and it's a lot of fun it's it's a lot of fun cool um, and so those sorts of films come from this uh, i forgot to mention there's a whole bunch of um, comic books that go back as far as 1865 that um have monster kids in them like max and moritz which i think was one of the um uh which I talked about in one of our presentations at Cinemaniacs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I love Pet Cemetery. Um, that's that film always with the scalpel scene, always. It's one of those moments that I always find hard to watch. Do you, yeah. Miko, Miko Hughes is great. Um, I really like him in, well, I love the film. Um, Where's Craven's new nightmare. And I know you're, you're a fan as well. Um, and I just remember that just blowing my mind in the nineties, um, uh, you know, a, a meta film and just really smart and beautiful and poignant. And one of the best performances in the guise of wonderful Heather Langenkamp. I think she got so, gets so much to do in that and she's friggin' excellent. Um, but yeah, I just, I love the, the Hansel and Gretel motif. Really cool. But Miko Hughes, um, you know, a few years earlier in 88 or 88, yeah, 88, um, as Gage, he's really effective. There's something kind of, 
um, almost, even though, yes, sometimes he is played by a doll, but even when he's not not played by a doll, he seems like one. There's something even like pre-zombie, you know, when he's just a healthy, normal gauge, he's still, he's got this kind of, um, uh, doll-like quality. It's really, it's quite, um, eerie when you watch it, when you kind of know what's going to happen. And then also the tragedy of it, the, you know, not fair, you know, that kind of thing and the father having to put him down, it's... Yeah. Freaking devastating, but yeah, it's a beautiful, oh. it's a beautiful performance from a little, little kid. Yeah, it's fab- it's fabulous, fabulous, and also look, Bloody Birthday, my God. Oh yes, Ed Hunt, 1981. That's a great film. Absolutely. Um, How interesting is it that it's sort of pitched as a slasher film, um, and then it's not at all. It's a, it's an evil kid film with you know the eclipse having something to do with their evil <laughs> nature. Well, I love to think of it as a slasher film. Uh, mm. that, that you know, and I love that first death scene that these two these two people are are making love in a graveyard, and then she's like, "Oh, I feel exposed," and so they actually get into a grave where they're killed. Yeah, it's like, this lovely motif of death and sex coming right there in that. Yeah, like, that's true. The opening is very much like a slasher film, but then it sort of moves into evil kid terrain. But then, the, the, when the victim is a teen, like the sister. Um, that's, that's very cool. That's very, you know, playing on the tropes of slasher films. But I remember, um, the video cover, I was thinking, you know, I likened it more as a kid, I likened it more to happy birthday to me. Um, that kind of more traditional teen slasher thing. And then renting it as a kid going, oh my God, it's kids. It's like kids killing people. (laughs) So it's different. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, uh, another one I love is Cronenberg's The Brood. Oh yes, I mean, it's insane. Uh, I, I love the fact that you know we have these children who aren't children. I mean, like weird. It's like, hello, welcome to my cell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a terrifying film, <laughs> and just Samantha, Samantha Egger birthing. You know, oh god, and just that whole you know Cronenberg really sort of looking at and scrutinizing and making fun of really the um, touch me therapy fads and. Uh, the Estian sort of stuff and, you know, all that sort of self-help crap that was happening in that yeah. time, um, you know, getting welts and all that stuff, you know, all that creepy stuff that was happening in the news, you know, people kind of uh, doing self-help and hurting themselves and uh, all that kind of starvation and, um, you know, all that kind of thing that was trying to help people emotionally and mentally but just really doing more damage. Yeah, yeah, and, seriously. Yeah, regressive therapies and all that. And also just Samantha Egg on the topic of her... Um, have you ever seen, I'm sure you have, the made-for-TV movie All the Kind Strangers? It's her and Stacey Keach um, and Robbie Benson, um, John Savage. It's a made-for-TV film where they're hillbilly kids and they kidnap yep. the adults to keep them as parents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's an amazing film. Uh, and finally called All Resolves at the End, but that's an amazing film. And mm. that, that unsettling moment when he picks up this kid who's sort of hitchhiking but then takes him very kindly back to his house and it's like and they keep on driving and keep on driving and keep on driving it's like wow this is this is feeling more and more threatening yeah. it's so good yeah and then and sending out the, the cutest kid that's <laughs> 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 so weird and just that there's that great moment where stacy keach and samantha Egger have one second alone and she writes help me in the in the in the flower Really cool. Um, it's, yeah. Look, um, then there's then there's those films that use the um, the monster child or the evil child as a trope, so that you might have a moment of it when it's not like about them, but mm-hmm. it's in there. So I'm thinking about things like um, I don't know um, uh, Donald Kamel's um, Demon Seed. Yep. 
Yeah, where you where it's only at the end that you actually have the child. But there is there is as you were saying before, there's that whole um, birthing um, stuff that is uh, and uh, um, antenatal um, fear that's going on as well. Yes, definitely. What are some of your favourites there? Because there's quite a few of those. There are. Um, oh, um, there's look. The unborn is pretty. It's pretty great. I think Rosemary's Baby mm-hmm. is probably the the uh, the best of that bunch. Um, I have to say. Um, do, do you love? Uh, I don't want to be born. <laughs> oh yeah, God, Peter Sesti, amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> Joan Collins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little circus freak it's yeah it's great and um yeah. what's the other one with the the baby um oh god you're not talking it's alive are you yes i am <laughs> <laughs> and it's sequels um, island of the alive and yeah oh yes it's alive yeah look um uh have you seen i tell me you haven't seen the remake of it's alive yeah no <laughs> i'm so pleased please keep it that way right yeah it's awful and the the worst thing about it is that it has um larry cohen's name attached oh god uh, right yeah like was, based on characters of or well he produced oh okay and it's such a shame because it's 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 not a particularly good film at all oh, um compared to the original yeah um, and what a filmmaker is... what an amazing like i love full moon high no one talks about that in regards to 1981 as the year of the werewolf. <laughs> um, and also Q, the winged serpent. Q, the winged the staff. Um, so many great films. Yeah. So many great films. Yeah, yeah. He's he's one of those. Uh, I just watched last night um, uh, with some friends. We watched um, Chud. Yep. And that belongs to that same sort of using horror as a means to explore social issues. And that's one of the things that Kramer did. So I was thinking, not Kramer, um, <laughs> Larry Kramer. Um, Larry, that's one of the things that Cohen does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Absolutely. And even like you're talking about back um, before the Nazi thing, his sequel to Salem's Lot, Return to Salem's Lot, has the Nazi subplots and, you know, all the children, the vampire children in the nighttime playing. It's cool. It's, I mean, it's, you know, yeah. it's, it is what it is. It's definitely it's definitely not Toby Hooper's Silent Slot, but it's something. How about how about um actually this is while we're on this topic obviously the vampire child mo- uh, model now that's something that you seldom see but I remember being so obsessed with the kids in Salem's Lot like tapping at the window because you never really got to see children as vampires and all I can think of are the children in Salem's Lot and then of course you know the kid in Near Dark. Um, later, Claudia in Interview with the Vampire. But the child vampire, I remember The Grave of the Vampire, that great film uh, with the baby sucking on his mum, uh, mum's breast and drawing blood. That was amazing as well to see. But Oh, the- my God. I showed the trailer to my students and they were just flipping. Oh, really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> what was the context? Oh, um, I can't remember. I think I was just wanting to shock them. Good. Because <laughs> they were talking about how things are shocking now. It's like, oh, come on. Come on, dear. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lamora is another one. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, from uh, when's that? 1973, I think it is. Um, yeah, so that's also a sort of, well, more teen child. But, yeah. You know, it's it's called A Child's Tale, but, you know, we have a... 
that, and that's one of the problems I think around talking about um, monster child or evil child films is the um, the slip the slippage that happens between um, uh, children and teens. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very clear for myself around that because a child stops being a child around when when it when it leaves primary school and goes to high school and has to start dealing with a whole different set of issues. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, and now they're dealing with being away from home more and. Um, learning to distance themselves more um, from their parents right. and dealing with issues of sex and sexuality and all those sorts of things that we do not associate with children. Mm-hmm. So uh, my interest has always been in um, evil child, evil, evil children from that context. And so there's some uh, evil kids who are very, who, where sex becomes something that is like, oh my God. Uh, and one that we just spoke about before was... Um, um, Oh, what did we say before? Um, um, a bloody birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you have the kids peeking through the hole mm-hmm. and looking at um, Julie Brown dressing, and it's like, this is scandalizing. Mm-hmm. And also, you mentioned before about little girl live down the lane. It's like, wow. Um, so it, there's this really uncomfortable element to um, sex and sexuality when it comes to kids, and so um, I yeah, think it, it, in. in in teen films, it's not shocking, but in, in um, monster child films, it is shocking. It is, yeah. I remember the TV movie version of The Bad Seed and um, Carradine's in it, um, uh, one of the Carradine family. And, God, I've gone blank on which one it is. Anyway, but he he's in it and he he looks at um, Rhoda and he says, I see London, I see France, I see underpants or something. And I remember that being really kind of, oh, my God, you know, fuck. Like, there's all this sort of creepy creepy stuff happening there as far as like um you know sort of pederast sort of behavior and children sort of being victimized and seen as sexual um and and, and, and when when she kills him um, he's looking at porn in the in the uh, shed as well that's right yeah 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 and also in the original bad seed the the criminologist or the writer who's the the uh, the man that's um Oh God! What's the character's name? The one that's like he has all the info about, um, you know, the serial killers and um, oh God! Yeah, oh God! I and can't remember. He, his name. You're not talking about the father, are you? Not the father, but the, the the friend that that has all the insight into, you know, I think Evelyn Arden's character. Oh, he thrives on buckets of blood, and she says that that's about right. him. But that's he, right. he, that's, um, that's uh, Reggie. Um, yes, Reginald. Yeah. There's a scene in that that's really unnerving, and when you rewatch it, you'll pick it up. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, where he he um, touches her plaits, her braids, and he says, so beautiful, or says something, and it lingers, and he sort of you know touches her a bit too long, and it's really sickly. And then as she leaves the room, Rhoda puts her plait, her braid back in place. It does too. Yeah, and it's kind of ugly. Like, it's like, oh, like, what the fuck is this guy about? Why doesn't he cop it? Oh, and and also Leroy, Henry Jones. Mm. My God. I mean, like, when he's splashing her and there's that scene where the camera is down low and she jumps back and you actually see up her dress. Yeah. It's, yeah, and so he's objectifying her as well and there's this obvious attraction there. Yeah, absolutely. And she plays him because he's dumber. It was more dim than her. Yeah. Yeah. But he's also the all-seeing, you know, dumb person. <laughs> the one that knows oh, the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, really cool stuff. But um, the um, Monster Kid, as far as Supernatural Monster Kids, 
what are some examples that you kind of um, gravitate to? Because they wouldn't have been very prominent um, at all, really, in the silent era all the way through to probably, no. what, the 50s, until you get to something like Village of the Damned, right? But well, yep. they were around, but they were the, the children were always victims in those films. They were always they were, ghosts they were, they were and stuff? into things. Yeah. They were kind of ghosts or victims turned into carrots in the, in the, uh, in the Beast of something flats so yeah, yeah. yucca flats yeah <laughs> <laughs> the beast is it the beast of yucca flats no 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 no. i'm not thinking of that one um oh, ferndale sorry the beast of ferndale forest is what I'm thinking right of. okay and that's like from 1908 or something yeah but the, the children oh wow sorry i'll have to look that one i need to see that that sounds amazing they turned into carrots yeah, good luck trying to find it because okay. I think it's a lost film. Right. There's descriptions of it, but unfortunately not. It's not around anymore. That sounds but, incredible. <laughs> you know, I love Steven Spielberg's take on The Monster Child. From 1972. Oh, yeah. Something Evil? Yeah. Something Evil. That's yeah. a great film. What a I film. Mean, Johnny Whittaker. And Johnny Whittaker would go on to play um, uh, Tom Sawyer. Yes. So he's great in that. I mean, like he does a great snarl. Yeah. Well, he's a weird. He's a weird looking kid, right? Like, <laughs> and and it's a and Sandy Dennis is divine in it. But yeah, no, I love that fucking movie. I think it's a fantastic film. It is brilliant. I don't understand why it hasn't had a release. Another TV movie, Craig, um, that's about birth and the fear of birth is the wonderful um, The Stranger Within with Barbara Eden. Now, there's one I haven't seen. Oh, yet. you have to. So she gets impregnated by an alien force and she starts to become manic and starts to eat raw coffee and she starts to um, um, learn, like, speed read and learn all this stuff with this alien being growing inside of her. And it's Barbara Eden doing this a phenomenal performance. Like, she's actually crazy throughout it and terrifying. And her husband's sort of, you know, thrown by the situation, doesn't know why she's pregnant, so it brings up all this stuff about infidelity, blah, blah, blah. Um, Joyce Van Patten's plays one of her best friends who's sort of dealing with this as well. But, um, yeah, um, Barbara Eden gets to sort of do this really monster sort of mother role and, you know, birthing this evil being. It's really cool. Check it out. Brilliant. I want to see this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd love it. And she starts painting. She constantly paints this... Um, this scenic sort of view, this this mountain and this forest, and that's where the, the I think the alien children, because other women have been impregnated in the town, um, are supposed to go to and and um, deliver the children. Um, yeah, it's a really it's an awesome film, but um, the other TV movie while we're on the topic of TV movies is a little game, the one about the guns, the the kid with the. Yeah, this kid who's just overprotecting his mum. There's this whole beetle thing going on. Yes, yes. That's amazing, yeah. That's yeah. great. And uh, he's, he's genuinely threatening. Yes, he's horrifying. And yeah. also the other um, uh, kid and mum thing in um, uh, What the Peeper Saw, the one with um, little Oliver, what's his name? Mark Lester. Oh, yeah. <laughs> little Mark Lester. God, you've got to love him. But a uh, film I want to uh, also mention uh, while we're discussing films is um, not so much an evil child film, but like the tropes of evil evil kids is um, the Brotherhood of Satan, where you have um, Strother Martin, who is leading a coven in this small town. It's one of those great films where you have people who come into town and they can't get out. Mm. Uh, um, and the kids are being recruited by the coven um, to 
um, so that the witches in the coven can regenerate. Um, there's another film, I can't remember who that's, but it's like a British film that's kind of like that, um, directed by Peter Sazdy, that does something similar. But The Brotherhood of Satan is so stylish, and it's you can tell it's been sm- been made on the cheap, but uh, these top, these the kids' toys all um, uh, supernaturally grow to these immense proportions and just uh, kill their intended victims, the parents and the like. And the film starts out with a um, uh, station wagon that's being flattened by a toy toy tank, mm-hmm. and the way it, the way it's shot, this lovely um, the way it's cut is just beautifully done. Uh, so you have these constant shots, these little toy tank. You have the screams and the sounds of metal and glass smashing and um, metal um, bending and breaking. Um, and uh, it's quite horrific and um, uh, disorienting as well. It's it's gorgeous. I love that film. Awesome. I wanted to ask about, because, I mean, I feel like a lot of evil kid films compared to like slasher movies, which I've always seen as really upbeat, I find them really comforting and fun. Um, whereas like, um, evil kid movies, a lot of them are really, um, bleak and grim. One of them that I find, you know, people, people kind of question, um, horror and think it's all kind of dark and depressing. And I really don't think it is a lot of the time. Um, I find, you know, maybe melodrama is even more bleak and more sort of downer than horror. Um, and so when I watch a horror film that actually is genuinely depressing and bleak and a downer, it really resonates. And one of them is The Godsend, which I just, I, I watch that and go, oh my God, like, can this family go through any more turmoil? Um, do you know The Godsend? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think I do. Remind me. So The Godsend is Angela Pleasance plays this pregnant woman who... Um, you know, comes across a young family with kids. Um, it's a British, it's English, and she is heavily pregnant, and she gives birth and then disappears. And this family are left with this child, this um, weird-looking kid um, with blonde hair and um, piercing blue eyes, and she kills off each of their own sure. children. Yes, that's right. Oh. Look, that's that's another one I haven't seen yet. I've read about it at length, and that's why it didn't come to me first off. Oh, that sounds amazing. It it's is. Like a- it's yep. like a cuckoo situation. Exactly. It, absolutely. And the little girl, um, amazing performer, she was in the Hammer um, uh, TV series um, Children of the Full Moon, which was the one about the children werewolves. Um, yeah, I love that one. Yeah, really cool. So she was one of the werewolves in that. But, yeah, um, so the godsend is really much – it's it's so depressing. It's really bleak. And so is something like Don't Look Now. Um, Audrey Rose, oh my God, that ending where Marsha oh. Mason is watching her daughter die, fucking yeah. hell. So do you feel yeah. like, is that, do you feel like as an academic and as someone is a scholar on evil children, that there is this underlying sadness within a lot of these films, that they're not, they're not fun in the sense that a slasher film is? Uh, yeah, and I think some of that has to do with uh, the fact that um, a lot of these kids are, they're, they're pressing, they're pushing against a system that we are born into and that we learn to just take for granted that we are um, controlled by. Mm-hmm. Um, and these films have these kids who break out, kind of like what Vivian um, Sobchak's talking about with um, the counterculture, that's this, this moment of hope where uh, we have a future and a new society that's being rewritten by the young and then um, the kids uh, are defeated. And a film like 
we were talking before about um, uh, who can kill a child, that has a sort of upbeat ending in a way because the kids don't die and they're going out into the world to change more people and there's this, there's this whole viva la revolution happening. Mm. Um, but when the kids are killed, um, it's there is the tragedy of the death of a child, but it's also the death of a movement that mm. happens as well. And I think that's um, part of the part of the downbeat side of it. Mm. And also, I think a lot of them um, come up trumps. They come up as winners. Um, Damien survives. Um, uh, Rosemary succumbs to her baby. Um, you know, there's a there's a sense that a lot of these evil kids kind of rise. Um, yeah. Um, which yeah is... One of my fa- one of my favourites of all of those that the kid of the kids surviving is Flesh for Frankenstein, mm. where they're the only ones who survive. Yeah, that's true. And it's and it's great, you know, and they, they actually open the film and there's a scene where one of them puts a little doll into a into a, a miniature guillotine and cuts its head off and they're obviously at the start these two children who remain mute throughout the film um, and they're into torture and the like and they there's this whole, again, Nazi undercurrent here where these kids um, uh, are the um, birth children of a father who is obsessed with all this, and uh, so they take over, and um, yeah, that's a, that's an amazing film. Um, and you have Delessandro at the end hanging up, and uh, obviously he's going to be their uh, next experiment. Mm. Joe Delessandro, yeah. Yeah, 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 amazing. That's mm. cool. And I'm the the kids. That's in, like talking, like sticking on the theme of Joe and the that kind of movement, that new wave cinema movement and Warholian cinema, um, and films that were kind of influenced by that sort of um, you know art movement, the New York art movement, and then lo- looking at say European cinema, you got you got weird films like Beyond the Door in it, it, you know production in Italy with um, uh, Juliet Mills. And the kids in that, do you remember the kids, her kids in that are so, they're like, they're jive talking and weird. And like that film is, you know, got that kind of sensibility, that kind of new Hollywood sensibility, but quirky kind of avant-garde art film vibe, um, as well as, you know, exploitation and rip-off cinema because ripping off both The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby in one go. But then the kids in that, her actual, because remember in that movie, she's pregnant to the devil and also possessed by the devil. But then she's got these two children already who are just like, you know, jive talking and weird and like swear. And <laughs> so you get this whole sense of like you were talking about, um, not so much the films that are child centric, but the tropes of evil children or naughty children or, you know, misbehaving, weird, you know, uh, socially um, reckless or um, carefree children intertwined within plots that are not about them but they're part of the they're part of the sort of fabric so that's interesting as well to see that kind of rise as well kids becoming more vocal and um not just the clean cookie cut kids of the 50s you know they're they're edgy and angry and weird and and socially you know um alien yeah oh yeah and i love the fact that you brought up um uh beyond the door um yeah (laughs) Because, <laughs> um, or I didn't, I think I said that wrong, Kise. <laughs> um, but that is, um, I, I love the Italian and the Italian take on, on those films. Mm. Um, like, um, what's her name in The Night Child? Um, oh, yes. Um, Nicola. Tell oh, me. Yeah. Yeah. She's brilliant. Who Saw Her Die? Mm. Uh, the Night Child. All these 
fabulous film that she's in. Um, uh, what's the Argento one that she's in with the lizard? Um, where she kills the lizard. I can't remember what it's called. Um, yeah, but uh, she's an amazing presence on screen and she uh, only has to be there and she doesn't, she barely says anything like in um, Barren Blood and she, um, uh, and there's this unnerving thing about her, the Italians and Monster Kids, mm. perfect together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. And also um, when you look at um, more sort of uh, non-American, you know, rip-off cinema like Satan from Turkey, <laughs> the character of Gull, like, yeah, you know, just these crazy, wild, possessed kids. And oh. also talking about possessed children, one of my favourites ever, um, I remember seeing it very late at night as a kid and just, hit, like, haunted me and I was obsessed with it, was The Innocents, which I think is one of the scariest films, you know, um, just so chilling. Um, the Miles character and the Flora character, both of them being really... You know, God, mesmerizing and 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 terrifying, and also really tragic. Uh, that film just, I think, is just another perfect example of evil kids and tormented kids. Uh, yeah, look, I love that film. I love the scene uh, at the um, when she's hiding from the kids. They're playing um, hide and seek, mm. uh, and there's that amazing moment where um, Peter Quint appears at the at the window. Yeah. That's, that's, I remember the first time I saw that, I jumped a mile. But um, Paola Franklin, she's yeah. fantastic as Flora. Yeah. And I, I love that there's a sort of um, return to that uh, whole um, uh, haunted house house thing that happens with, um, uh, what's that film she was in? The um, um, Yeah, The Haunting of Hill House, um, where she plays a clairvoyant. Um, named Florence, and so there's a there's a I see there's a lovely um, line between the innocents. Yeah, she plays Flora, and now she's playing Florence, and uh, it's it's gorgeous. And again, she's this innocent, uh, childlike character who is who has this connection with um, with uh, with the spirits of the house. It's great. Yeah, and that's similar to what they did with the sequel to Cat People, Robert Wise's Curse of the Cat People. Um, which is kind of benign horror film. You know, it's a ghost story, but it's very sort of benign and sweet and like a fairy tale where the little girl has the, 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 the ghost, the phantom that she talks to. Lovely stuff, that kind of connection between children and the supernatural. And you get that in really cool, broad comedies, like uh, which actually opens quite grim. The, um, the one with Charles Lawton and um, Margaret O'Brien, going back to her. Uh, the Canterville Ghost. That's right. I love um, that yeah. movie because it starts really dark, like you know the you know the legend of his dad um, burying him alive in the in the wall, <laughs> like yeah. putting uh, putting the brick formation on top of him, and then his ghost befriends Margaret O'Brien while she's her house is keeping um, the soldiers, uh, you know, hosting the soldiers while they visit while they're down. She's fantastic in that. She is so good. I, I love her in that. She really holds her own against all these um, these older soldiers who are all trying <laughs> to eat the scenery and she's like, uh-uh-uh, I'm doing it first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's pretty good. Um, but yeah, like there's so many child actors as well. That's the other thing as well. Um, this is what we can sort of wrap up the conversation with. But um, for the next uh, 10 minutes is the beauty of evil child movies is it does give opportunity for really strong, powerful child performances. 
I mean, Susan Swift in um, Audrey Rowe, oh, either children, evil children or, you know, possessed children or children who are sort of, mon- you know, quite unquote monster children, not that they necessarily are evil. But, you know, Susan Swift in Audrey Rose or um, uh, Linda Blair in The Exorcist, uh, you know, it keeps going. Paddy McCormick, of course, in The Bad Seed. You have to remember Paddy McCormick and Linda Blair both up for Oscars um, playing, you know, monster children. So that's a big deal. People always ignore these facts when they Oscar time comes around. They go, horror movies never get nominated. Ah, they do. And in fact, uh, not only did the kids get nominated there, but in the uh, Best Actress, Nancy Kelly and Alan Burstyn were nominated as well. But, um, you know, the child actor gets to do a lot by playing these kind of monster child roles. And I think that's really, that's something to celebrate, I think. It's kind of like... You know, it should be regarded as a really positive thing for, for young actors. It's amazing. Absolutely. Um, one of my, one, I think one of the most intriguing performances is from Harvey Stevens in The Omen. Um, because he pretty doesn't, he pretty much doesn't do anything. It's like he's just plonked down in front of the camera yeah. and, and told, play. And so he's just doing what he does. And then the adults around him, um, provide the context mm-hmm. and that's a that's a really interesting performance because when when people talk about monster child films often the omen is one of the first uh ones that people go to mm-hmm. and that whole scene at the end where he turns around and smiles at the camera they say oh it's so chilling and it's like well what is he doing in this film apart from when he rides his tricycle and, and knocks um his poor mum uh from the balcony um what is he doing in the film that's actually evil there's not much going on yeah. uh, and it's it's just the soundtrack and the editing and the other actors' performances who, who are doing all the work for us. And it's, that's, I, I love that performance for that reason that there's this naturalism there of a child behaving like a child and yet we're going, he's so evil. Mm. What is that saying about us? I know. That's really true. Yeah, the, the perception is, is more important than what he's actually doing. He's very passive. He's kind of reactionary more than anything. And it's everyone else around him. You're absolutely right. And then his keepers, you know, Mrs. Baylock, etc. They're the ones who are kind of the real monster roles. They're the real sort of, they're like kind of, you know, parlor room <laughs> monster, you know, villains. <laughs> Whereas like little Damien's just a kid being a kid. But you're right, absolutely right in saying it's all about the characters around him. And that kind of responds to that great scene in The Exorcist that was deleted where, um, Karis asks um, Meryn why this little girl, it makes no sense. And Car- and Meryn says she's not the reason. It's it's to make everyone around her feel um, despair and feel ugly. Yeah. Yeah, look, and with that in mind, I think a great place to end is to acknowledge that um, uh, evil child films are so often not about the kids themselves, but about us and what we bring to them. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll end with um, maybe the trailer for The Omen. But thank you so much, Craig. It's been a joy always. I hope you've had fun. Oh, look, it's been lovely to break out and to socialise with you in this uh, time of social distancing. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) and, uh, we all miss you, Lee, and we can't wait for Cinemaniacs to come back and for us all to get together and to have a drink. And in the meantime, we hope you enjoy our conversation together. Thank you, Craig. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife, Catherine, was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, 
something terrible happened. And then it happened again. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. 20th Century Fox presents a film of psychological suspense about an occurrence of earth-shaking importance. Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. I was at the hospital, Mr. Thorne, the night your son was born. I saw its mother. I saw its mother. I have fears. I have fears. What kind of fears? It's mother, Mr. Thorne. It's on my wife. It's mother. What is it you're trying to say? His mother was a... This is not a human child. Make no mistake. There are those who will die for him. There are those who will kill for him. Who is he? What does he want? Where did he come from? And can he be stopped? Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. If this is the truth, where does it end?